Let's get started with prayer, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to get together tonight. We thank you, Father, that you gave us your word. Thank you, Father, that you prepared the hearts of these folks here, and they're ready to learn your word. Help me, Father, as I teach the word. May my words be your words. Bless us now. Bless this fellowship. Bless this time. In Christ's name, amen. Everybody get a handout. There are some more handouts in the back, I believe. Pressed it twice, I think. All right. So the title of our book tonight is uh, Isaiah, but it'll just be the first half of Isaiah. You don't need to distinguish that. Just write down Isaiah. There are some things that Josh will go over next week. And if you ever ask me a question, then Josh will cover that next week. <laughs> so that happened. Um, the author of Isaiah is, uh, oddly enough, is Isaiah. Uh, his name does mean the Lord is salvation, which is very meaningful. He was the son of a man named Amos. Most likely Amos was a very influential man in Jerusalem because you see Isaiah being referred to as Isaiah the son of Amos all throughout the book. So his father must have been a very influential man. He ministered during the reign of four separate kings, and these were kings of Judah. So Isaiah is particularly the prophet of Judah and not of Israel. Those four kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His prophetic ministry lasted well over 50, well, I think it was 54 years, from 739 to 686 B.C. Isaiah was married. He had two sons. He gave the prophetic names Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant shall return, and Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Seems to me you don't want to call that kid for dinner too many times because the dinner will be cold. <laughs> Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. I, I like the name. Anyway. That word, yeah, his middle name exactly, yeah, Fred. But it means the, se the spoil seeds and the prey hastens. That's what Mahar's uh, name means. Um, Isaiah began his ministry at the death of Uzziah. Although he readily accepted his call, from the very beginning he knew that his ministry would be completely fruitless. And this is what was said in, in the, the book that I was studying, that his ministry would be fruitless, and yet there are glimmers of hope at the very end of his ministry which we'll talk about tonight. So it wasn't entirely fruitless, but pretty much it was fruitless. Um, his job was to warn and exhort Israel in, the, in the, the nation of Judah to turn from their wicked ways and try as he might, they did not change. He lived at the same time as Hosea and Micah. He is distinct from the rest of all Old Testament prophets by his writing. Isaiah's style has no rival among all of the rest of the Old Testament writers. Versatility of expression is rich, completely unmatched. His imagery has been characterized as brilliant, and his vocabulary was so deep that it was said as early as 300 A.D. to be evenly compared to the Greek literary giant Demosthenes. Uh, never read any Demosthenes, but I'd like to now. Once you read Isaiah, it's just astonishing to read that book. And I don't even speak Hebrew. And it, it's still just, just the way he writes it in the different forms of literary um, style that's there. This is an absolutely gorgeous book. In the writing of his book, he used 2000, over 2,100 words. Most Old Testament authors used fewer than 1,000. Now, Jeremiah, Psalms, and Ezekiel were all over 1,500. But to compare that to the United States today, I, this got me thinking, well, what, what's 2,000? Is that a lot? Is that a little? How's that, how's that look? America has, we are absolutely in love with dictionaries, and the English language has more of a dictionary history than any other language. The largest dictionary in English has over 171,000 definitions. And that's not words, because we have several words with dual definitions. But of those 171,000 definitions in our largest dictionary, very few people have a spoken vocabulary of greater than 20,000 words. In fact, you're considered over-the-top smart if you've got a 20,000-word vocabulary. You're probably considered a publisher or an editor for a large publishing house if you have a 10,000-word vocabulary. Um, rarely does anyone ever get beyond 10,000, and 15,000, you're still, you know, you walk through the hardest of crossword puzzles without any kind of a challenge if you've got a 15,000-word vocabulary. On the average, the, um, an English speaker would command a 4,500-word vocabulary if they're educated. 
33% of all everyday writing in English consists of only 25 words. The first 1,000 words of your vocabulary utilizes 89% of your writings. And the first 3,000 words cover 95% of your writing. So that's the magic number. If you've got a 3,000 word vocabulary, you can read anything that's published today and 95% of it you'll understand. And you say, well, he had 2,100 words. What's the big deal with Isaiah? Well, here's the deal. The entire Hebrew language was composed of 420,000 words and made up of 8,679 unique words. He used 2,100 unique words. This means that he commanded a vocabulary somewhere between 75 and 90,000 words. And 20,000 in English is considered out of control smart. He was between 75 and 90. So just to put you in perspective, the man was astonishingly smart. He was brilliant in what he did. Spiritually, he was far beyond anyone in Israel. And when he wrote, he wrote beautiful stuff. Keep that in mind when you think of Isaiah 6. He knew 25% of his language, and he wrote it. 25% of the whole language, and he was able to write with that. All right, the date, 739 to 686 B.C. All of that's to say I just covered, like, what, one quarter inch on your outline? So hope you wrote small. I don't know. Purpose of the book of Isaiah, to set forth the doctrine of Christ. This might be another reason why I love the book so much. I mean, I love Colossians. I love the doctrine of Christ. I love Christology. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet because of the clear detail in which he set forth the doctrine of Christ. There is no clearer Christology anywhere in the Old Testament than in the book of Isaiah. The theme, salvation by grace. That's it. It's as simple as that. Um, it's, it's by the power of God, who's the Redeemer. It's not on the strength of man. It's not on the good works of the flesh. Salvation is bestowed only by grace, period. I should have had most of the outline on there. Is there a seven-part outline, A through G, on there for you? Yes. Okay, let me give you the scriptures that you can see where the, the outline goes. Um, the volume of rebuke and promise goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 13. The volume of Emmanuel goes from chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 6. God's judgment to the nation goes from chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 23, verse 18. Uh, God's judgment in general is 24, 1, to 27, 13. God's judgment to the unbelievers of Israel is 28, 1, to 33, 24. And His judgment and promise is 34, 1, to 35, 10. The volume of Hezekiah is 36.1 to 39.8. Uh, notice this, this ends at the end of chapter 39. There's a larger outline that goes to, 30, that goes to 66, and Josh will cover that next week. So I get to say that. Um, at the very end, if there's time, I want to kind of walk you through a, a nice way to study the book of Isaiah, but it, it's, a, it's a very thorough manner to do it, and it takes 10 months. So if you've got 40 minutes a day and you want to commit 10 months to really know the book of Isaiah and really know Christology and really understand a fascinating, important time for the um, Israelite history, well, hopefully we can get to that at the very end. Uh, the background to Isaiah, what I want to do is just uh, point you to the map, and we'll go over some things in the map that's on the back of your sheet there. And I'll speak loudly. I hope you guys can hear me. And I know this can pick me up. We, we tested that this afternoon. So the first thing to do in your map is just to get your bearings straight. You want to go ahead and just do this little thing here. And that smaller area there is going to be Judah. And just to the north of it, you want to draw in Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, they probably touched. They didn't want to. They didn't like each other. But I didn't put their lines uh, touching very well. But. Assyria is the big boy on the block. From 810 to 750 BC, so out here in the Mediterranean Sea, write this in, 810 to 750 BC, peace. And there was peace in Israel between, at the during that range of about 60 years. And of course, whenever there's peace in Israel, the Judah and Israel think they're doing the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. They don't understand how sinful their nation is. But in God's sovereign plan, this is what he wanted. He wanted peace. 
Well, about 750 BC, there was a big kid on the block, and that big kid on the block was Assyria. So go ahead and circle Assyria. And in 745 BC, oh wait, I've got to, I've got to draw some more topographical features here. First of all, to the north of Assyria, for some reason I thought it would be nice to have green mountains because they have trees on them, I guess. I don't know. So draw, draw some mountains in there. And the point of the matter is, if you've got mountains to your north and you're the big boy in the block and you want to bully some little kids and kick dust in their face, you don't want to go over here and go to all that trouble of, of being the big boy in the block here. What Assyria wanted to do was expand their borders. They couldn't go north because the mountains were there. Furthermore, they really couldn't go south, straight south this way, because of the desert, okay? So what they wanted to do when they expanded, this divided their, their, their whole purpose into two. They wanted to expand down this river valley and to the east, and they wanted to go to the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and as long as they got there, they're gonna then head south. So you see, you're going to see Assyria doing this thing here and fighting this kind of a war, if you will, or doing that kind of an expansion either to the east or to the west and then south once they get uh, to the west. That was Assyria's big goal. Now, 745 BC, they got a new king. His name is Tiglath-Pileser. And I, I think Pileser is not capitalized. I guess their middle names are, are not capitalized when you're speaking in, in uh, Assyrian. I don't know. Uh, the king of Judah at the time is Uzziah. And the king in Israel is a guy named Jeroboam II. Okay. Starting in 752 and going to 741, Menachem... Oh, so there's a new king in, in Israel, oops, sorry, at 745, there is, is a new king in 745, his name is Menachem. He fancies himself a big powerful king, but if you look at the map, and you understand that Assyria is a large power, and you look at how small Israel is, <coughs> Menachem can think anything he wants, he's not a big king, okay? He's nothing more than a burr in the side of the Assyrian king of Tiglath-Pileser. So he may think he's really big, but he looks at the Assyrians who come in, they say, how would you like to be our ally? And they go, yeah, we'd like to be your ally. Then pay me some tribute. In other words, it's blackmail money so that we don't go ahead and, and, and wipe your nation off the map. So he says, well, what the heck? I want to live. Let's, let's go ahead and pay them some, some tribute. So Menahem pays him tribute and Judah now has a question. Judah does not like Israel. They haven't gotten along for generations. Since Israel is going to be pro-Assyrian, Judah decides, I think we'll be anti-Assyrians. And so they make some kind of a definition, they make some kind of a statement saying they're anti-Assyrian, and they will not enter into any kind of a, a, uh, any kind of a, a treaty with Assyria. But the problem with that is, they didn't do it for the theological reasons. They did it because they wanted to kind of, kind of hurt their, their brothers over here, the Israelites. They did it all for political reasons. And so this displeased God, of course, and Isaiah was very angry for doing this, and he, he told the king of Judah, told uh, Uzziah. So anyway, by 741, all this, this tribute's going back to Assyria all the time. And in uh, 739, with the death of Uzziah, his, uh, Uzziah was, um, was advised by Isaiah in 739 not to, not to have any kind of a, of a treaty here with Assyria or not to have a treaty with anyone else against Assyria. Just listen to God and do what God tells him to do. And the council then, after Uzziah, is Ahaz. And Ahaz makes an open declaration that he's going to go ahead and be anti-Assyrian. That's in 735. So that would mean that immediately Damascus and Israel launch attacks and they fight Judah. Why do they fight Judah? Because Judah is against Assyria and Assyria 
told them that they're their friend, but really the Sui is not their friend. They just are paying them so that they're not their enemy. So this whole thing is political, okay? So now we've got a battle going on between Damascus and Egypt, or I'm sorry, Damascus and Israel fighting against Judah. In 732, Assyria destroys Damascus. He figures, oh look, you weren't protecting your flank. So what's he do? Thank you for uh, defending my honor against Judah. He goes over and he defends and he, he attacks Damascus. And we learn something about politics. When Tiglath Pileser dies, with him dies the treaties. This means that Israel says, I'm no longer going to pay you tribute. He was doing the same thing to all these small little nations here on the eastern side, and they all rebel as well, and they say, we're not going to pay you tribute. <clears throat> so now Assyria's got two choices. Do I go ahead and take care of all this business first, or do I go down here and take care of this business first? Well, these countries can't go up and attack them because there's a big desert in the way. These are their immediate threats. So the first thing Assyria does, he settles down and, and takes care of this, all this political stuff, and and starts conquering all these nations again and demanding tribute from them on the, on, the eastern slope, on the eastern front, if you will, before he goes and he takes care of these little tiny nations over here on the Mediterranean coast. In 724 BC, Samaria is laid siege, and in 721 BC, Samaria falls. And Samaria is nothing more than the southern part of northern 721 BC. Samaria falls, and Samaria fell by siege. So when you fall by siege, they surround your cities, and they basically starve them out. And then they, they, they try to get them to capitulate. When they do capitulate, they kill them. And if they don't capitulate, they destroy their city, and then they kill them. So I mean, you know, you're in a no-win situation. But Samaria falls in 721 BC, who replaced Tiglath-Pileser as Shalamanser. I better get his name down there. In 721, <laughs> he dies. Sargon replaces him. And the same process happens again in 721. When Sargon replaces him, everybody says, oh, we're not going to pay you tribute anymore, except, of course, Israel, who's now been conquered. But all these other little, little countries around here, there's especially Babylonia, they're no longer going to pay him tribute. And all these countries here, they're no longer going to pay him tribute. So now, Sargon's got the same problem as he had before. The biggest problem, however, is Babylonia. So they fight Babylonia from 721 to 714. Here, finally, in 714, Babylonia falls. Finally. It took him eight years to kill them off. But now, if you can see, they're the, all the countries that are written in big, large type, they're the ones that are probably going to be the big, the big boys and, and the big powerhouses. Well, now Assyria is the juggernaut. There's no one that can fight them. They've, they've taken care of everyone, but it's, it's spilled a lot of blood to do it. And at 714 BC, he decides, okay, now I can go in there and I can reconquer all this area here because they haven't been paying me tribute for, for quite some time. So they go back in here, and he goes all the way down to Tyree this time. Oh, wait, he's already had Tyree. He's going all the way down to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod had a treaty with Egypt. And Sargon goes all the way down to Ashdod, which you look is just down the road from Jerusalem. Well, Ashdod here and Egypt here, they had themselves a treaty. So the king of Ashdod flees to Egypt for safety. What does Egypt do? Well, they give the king of Ashdod over to Assyria because they're trying to save their own hide. So this is the kind of people Egypt's are, the Egyptians are. When Ashdod goes here, they give him over to Assyria, trying to call a little bit of favor from the Assyrians. These people are not to be trusted, apparently. Well, in 706, guess who dies? Take a wild guess. Sargon. Who dies? Sargon. 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 Seven. Now Sargon dies. In fact, he dies on the battlefield. Probably one of his generals killed him. I mean, the intrigue here, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. One guy kills another, then this and then that. And these this country's going back and forth, and does this all they really do is fight? Well, if you read history, that's the way it looks like. Everybody just fights against the other guy. I'm not really sure what they're fighting for. He's replaced by a guy named Sennacherib. While he's replaced by Sennacherib, 
the guy that was in Babylonia, I got his name written down here. He's, he's got like a five-part name. When they defeated Babylonia, the big, big guy in Babylonia, his name was Marduk Apaladinia. He was leading the insurrection. And, and they didn't really kill him. So I'm just going to call him Marduk. And Marduk reappears when Sennacherib becomes king in Babylonia. Guess what they say? We're not going to pay tribute anymore. So here we go again. So Assyria then, at the, underneath the, the rule of Sennacherib, they've got to go down here and they've got to fight Marduk again. And, and sure enough, they do. And, and sure enough, they, say, they think they've defeated him this time. But Babylonia is going to rise again, and that's going to happen after um, 686 B.C., and that's what Josh is going to cover next week, maybe. I don't know. But that happens in chapter 40 or 42. The, the bottom line is they've really wiped out Babylonia this time. Sennacherib is the king. Sennacherib, oh, by the way, now Egypt has a formal treaty, and so does Edom, and so does, um, where is it? Cush, and so does uh, Elam, and so does Judah. All these countries are put in, they're in cahoots now. They're all going to be one big huge alliance against Assyria. Well, Sennacherib, after he defeats Babylon, comes down around here, and he's knocking on the door to Jerusalem. So this has been going on now. One, one war after another since 745 B.C. He defeats Babylonia, goes north, west to Syria, down the coast of Philistia, crushes the cities of western Judah, ends up surrounding Jerusalem, and the date is unclear in this case here. But while Jerusalem is being laid siege, Jerusalem sends word out to Egypt that they want some help. Egypt delays. Gee, I'm, I'm shocked. So the army is not coming. They're getting no help. Hezekiah, who is now the king of, of Judah, sends this big, huge tribute out because Sennacherib is knocking at his door. They have no water left. They have no food left. They send an envoy inside the gates. And, of course, the envoy tells them all kinds of nasty things that are going to happen to him. And he says, you know, we're eating, we're drinking your water and we're drinking your wine and we're eating your grapes and we're having a great time out here. And meanwhile, you're locked inside this city and your walls aren't very thick and we're pretty much going to wipe you out. And he even begs him one time, he says, please, please speak in Aramaic. Don't speak in the tongue where the people can understand what you're saying. You know, I don't even want these guys on the wall to hear what you're saying. Don't tell them the, the situation is dire. You know, I, I think they figured out the situation was pretty dire. <clears throat> Egypt does not come. Hezekiah pays the, the, the tribute. And for some odd reason, Sennacherib and his army leave. Now, taking at face value, I've walked you through now 40 chapters of Isaiah. I've marked up a whiteboard beyond recognition. But we have the instigator of a one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, and by the way, Damascus was in on a two for what good that did him. Seven nation alliance, all allied against Syria. And the instigator was right there, was, was the king, was Hezekiah. The, the, now the, he's the son of Ahaz. He's the king in Jerusalem. And they're really nothing more than mayors, the only kings of one city in the surrounding region. For some reason, not only did he not destroy Jerusalem, and not only did he not kill Hezekiah, but he left him on the throne, he didn't touch the city, and he walked away from the town after receiving some kind of a, of a small little tribute. It's not like, oh good, you gave me the tribute? Well, thank you very much. Have a nice day. You know, I mean, you just don't do that in war. You say, thank you for the tribute, now we're going to kill you. That's pretty much how it works when you're, when you're doing those kinds of things. Open your Bibles to 2 King 19. We'll read 14.37 for you. All of that was just to get you introduced. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14 to 38. It might be 37. It is just 37. I'll read that to you here. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it. 
Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, this is the first time we have a record of Hezekiah ever praying. In fact, of any kings here, very rarely do they pray if ever. And, and here he's actually praying and it's actually been recorded. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So he acknowledges him as the creator. That's important. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, kings of Assyria, have laid waste the nations of their, and their lands, have cast their gods into the fire. They were not gods, but the works of men's hands of wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. This is a very interesting way to, to, to beseech God because he's not asking him for the sake of his skin. He's asking him because of God's glory, because you are God. Prove to them that you are God. This is kind of re reminiscent of what Moses did in the desert. You know, what will all the other nations think, O Lord God? They, they won't know that. I mean, this is for your glory that I'm asking this, God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It's nice to have a, a prophet right there. He can give you the, the answer right away, isn't it? I like that. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning you. And now he changes to a poem. And this is magnificent, this poem. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel? By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its furthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? that I determined it long ago, I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me, because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook into your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, for his own sake. Isn't that interesting? I love his phrasing. And, the night, the angel, and, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and when people arose early in the morning, behold, those were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Syria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god. Adramelech and Shelazar, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Erashadon, his son, reigned in his place. 
He wakes up in the morning to 185,000 dead men in his army and he thinks to himself, think I better go. And so just like that he left. Now there is um, still an extent to this day a secular records of a large number of bodies found outside Jerusalem when it was being held siege. So, it, you know, not that anyone here would ever say that the Bible doesn't say things that are actually true, but this is something that was also proven true in other records. Um, and, and there is just no way that that army was going to be defeated by human means. But yet it was defeated, and it was defeated soundly. So that's the story, and that's what was going on. And finally, at the very end, Hezekiah prayed to God. We, we had no record of those kings praying to God beforehand, let alone praying to God for His glory. So that's the background to what goes on during the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. We see there Isaiah over and over and over again telling them, you have to repent, you have to turn away, you have to quit doing what you're doing and start following the Lord God, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't. And you read some more, and they don't. And it just gets, gets tiresome. But Josh and I were talking a few weeks ago about doing this, and, and he kind of laughed. He says, well, you're doing the first 39 chapters, and you get all the judgment, and I get all the glory. So, <laughs> so in the next 27 chapters, grace, grace, okay, sorry. <laughs> you get all the grace. And, and that's what's going to happen next. You're going to see God's grace. Um, what I want to talk about for the remainder of the night, and I've, I've got about, about enough time here, is uh, the, uh, the, the theology that's found in Isaiah. Uh, there are four main topics of theology which we may consider when we study the book of Isaiah. And those four topics are, this is not going to surprise anyone, God, man, sin, judgment, or redemption. And I put judgment and redemption together. Tonight we're only going to cover judgment for obvious reasons. Uh, the last 27 chapters talks more about redemption and the first one talks about judgment. But I want to talk about how Isaiah views God and the, uh, the real reason why he has the same view of God that he has is, is because of what happened in chapter 6. Um, if you've not read Isaiah chapter 6, please, that's one of the homework assignments I will give you tonight is go read chapter 6. It's an astonishing chapter. And, and anyone who lived through um, what he related in chapter 6 is, is God, his life will be forever changed. And Isaiah's life was forever changed by being in the very throne room of God. Uh, he expresses and displays the wonder and the grandeur of God better than any other Old Testament author. And how could he help it? Very early in his ministry, as we read in chapter 6, uh, he saw in a vision the very throne room of God. For the first time in God's Word, we read this otherworldly picture of an immense God surrounded by seraphim and smoke, and hearing the phrase, Holy, 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 sung three times all around him. And Isaiah is speechless. It's interesting that a man would be speechless who commanded the vocabulary that he commanded. Of all those words he knew, his first words were, I am a man of unclean lips. And you know, God does not argue that with him. In fact, he sends an angel with that, that the coal out of the, center, the censer, and he burns his lips. But you'll notice, it's God who has to cleanse Isaiah. Isaiah could do nothing to cleanse himself. God burns his lips in order to make him able to, to serve him. We see for the rest of the book that God is high. God is lifted up. And he would be referred to as the Holy One of Israel. The whole earth, Isaiah learns, is full of his glory. Chapter 6 serves to shape the way that Isaiah presents God to the nation of Israel and to the other nations. You can write this down, or you can put this in bold print if you want to. Isaiah never sees God as the other nations see idols, but he takes on a view of God that is transcendent. Isaiah views God as transcendent. And I'm going to use a lot of phrases here to talk about how he views God. Transcendence is one. God controls all the events. God controls all men. God controls all kings, all things. Uh, for a, a verse on that, go to chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. There's a great passage on that. 
But God is not merely majestic and great, God is also holy. More than any other title, Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel. There's a huge controversy that got started in the 19th century about whether or not the book of Isaiah was written by one author or multiple authors. And some people even say the second portion of the book was written by a committee of men. Um, but yet it's great literature. And, you know, a committee of men don't write great literature. And I'm going to let uh, Josh speak to that whole argument. But the Holy One of Israel is a unique phrase to Isaiah. And yet it was used throughout all 66 chapters. And it was used in, in very meaningful and deep ways throughout all 66 chapters. I doubt those, those, that so-called committee of men could, could come up with that the way they do. But up to you, Josh, to develop that next week, like I say. Oh, got it. Okay. As mentioned, there was an otherness to God. God was not just a superhuman that had magnified characteristics. He wasn't just a big grandfather in the sky. There was something in God's essence that was different than ours. God was not like us, nor are we like Him. We see this in, as He created the world. God is holy. God alone has the right to be called holy. Beyond His majesty, beyond His greatness, and beyond His holiness, Isaiah's thinking was also captured by God's moral and ethical perfection. So that's the third part, God's moral and ethical perfection. First one would be His transcendence. Second one is His holiness. Third one is His moral and ethical perfection. Uh, Isaiah's call in chapter 6, at once we see, um, upon seeing God, He's a man of unclean lips. He knew that whatever words he chose to speak to God and to describe God, they were impure words. In chapter 6, we see the angel has to command, I touched that about the censer, to, to touch his lips, to, to make him pure. Isaiah could not purify himself. So God is morally pure, and by contrast, the entire nation of Israel was filthy and was corrupt. Uh, references there are 520, 10, 3 to 4, and 30. 12 to 13. The untrustworthy and corrupt nature of Israel is the backdrop for the trustworthiness of God. So we see on one hand an untrustworthy nation, and we see on the other hand a completely trustworthy God. And the dichotomy is just startling. Uh, God's redemption will vindicate His holiness. We see this in 10 chapter, or chapter 10, verse 20, and chapter 12, verse 6. The whole reason for God to put on display His holiness before His chosen people, is so that they would share His character. And this is developed in, in the latter portion of the book. We see seeds beginning in chapter 35, verse 8. I love that phrase. God puts on display His holiness so that we could take on His character. I love that. Beginning in chapter 35, you said... That yeah, 35, verse 8, we see seeds that sown, but it really, that whole thing happens after chapter 39. I wish I could teach that tonight. Much of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah involves pagan nations who serve an assortment of man-made gods, worshiping idols, bearing a variety of names. And Isaiah is not silent on their worship. He views worship as folly, and with the depth of conviction he holds for the holiness, the might, the power of God. We shouldn't really be surprised. Most of his sarcasm reserved for the last part of the book, but we do see explicit warnings of these idols in chapter 30, verse 22. In chapter 31, 7, the real reason Isaiah is so pungent in his treatment of idols is because, honestly, idol worship is really nothing more than a reflection of humanity. If an idol is unable to perform his duty, it's nothing more than a reflection of the helplessness of our species, because an idol is nothing more than really what we are. Humans can't predict the future. Humans can't even affect the present in any meaningful way in most cases. We have to admit that while we experience events, we are in fact caught up in the events. It's God who controls history and it's God who works out our destiny. Much is said, much is said, I'm sorry, in this fascinating topic in the end of the book. I know. I, I, keep, I keep going on to that and oh, I wish I could talk about that, but anyway. Isaiah's narrative seems to show that pagan nations would first destroy Israel and then Judah. But this is really troubling. 
to Judah. I mean, this is, we, they're the chosen people of God. How could pagan nations destroy us? And because, after all, we are God's chosen plan. But God has a larger purpose. And this is the next thing I want to talk about when it comes to God. God's purpose is much larger than we imagine. And the term I'd like to use for that is intergenerational. But it's intergenerational on a millennial scale. It's, it's not just that it, it, it sweeps up all generations. It sweeps up all generations for thousands of years. God's purpose is for thousands of years. We can't begin to, 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 to grasp this. In a world that saw battles between nations as those that were really fought to vindicate how strong their God was, Isaiah's view that God's will is intergenerational is a daring view. And the people of Israel didn't dare want to agree with it, but it is filled with insight. God's control extends to those who don't even acknowledge Him. Think about that. God controls the people who don't even acknowledge that He is God. The nation of Israel came to see that while Zion might be his throne, the entire world is God's stage. And anything and everything that happens is under God's control anywhere in the world. Still true today. Well, I've started to get into the second topic a little bit. But if the first topic of theological importance is God, the second topic of theological importance has to be humanity. We move from God to man. It has been said that Isaiah loved to speak paradoxically. Now, if that's true, nowhere is it more clearly demonstrated than how he deals with humanity in the first 39 chapters of the book. So the first thing you might want to write down is, mankind seems to be portrayed using two extremes. Mankind seems to be portrayed using two extremes. First, man thinks he's the ultimate. If ever I read something as I was studying that looked like 2017, this was it. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the logical center for all thought and all contemplation. Let's just think about ourselves, shall we? And let's have, let's make God do what we want him to do because we are the center of all things. This is, this is our thinking today. On the other hand, mankind is one more worthless blob of protoplasm, only seen as more contemptible by its ability to cloak its rapaciousness with murmurings about value and destiny. I took that directly from a, I, I love this, this commentary that I'm reading, and uh, it's the New International Commentary of the Old Testament. Um, it's really big and thick, and it's really kind of expensive, but I'll loan you mine if you want to read it. But um, Man, it, it, I'll read that to you again if you just want to hear it. It just sounds wonderful. Man is one more worthless blob of protoplasm, only seen as more contemptible by its ability to cloak its rapaciousness with murmurings about value and destiny. And, yeah, I know. Murmurings about value and destiny when we are really only more contemptible by our ability to cloak our rapaciousness. I, I, I want to look up the word rapaciousness. I've still not done that, but anyway. The world, in this point of view, has to be cared for and nurtured as everyone's mother because everyone knows that life was belched out from the world in a complex series of random processes that somehow turned out just right. <laughs> now, since the foundation for existence was a random accident, the only logical conclusion we can come to is that life is meaningless. If we come forth from a random accident, even though it happened just right, our existence is meaningless. And amazingly, those two positions in Isaiah's mind just like a hand in a glove. They fit perfectly together. Let me explain as best I can. To assume that the physical universe and life exists on this little tiny world, to assume that they are the ultimate of all things that can exist, in Isaiah's mind, was to bring one startlingly to the opposite conclusion. Go to Isaiah 2, verse 6 to 22, and I will read that to you. Isaiah 2... Verse 6 to 22. 
For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against the uplifted hills, against every tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled." And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. And before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles to the bats, to enter the caravans, the caverns of the rocks, and the clefts of the cliffs. And before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? How many times did you put, did it sit down and say, that? what was the phrase that kept them going there over and over again? The terror of the Lord, and the Haughtiness of man brought low. Yeah, they said brought low like six times. Um, the growth and the change that's observed all around in all of the universe is not really growth and change, it's decay. Humanity that places itself in a position of grandeur all around is mocked by the transitory nature of its existence and finally by its death. Humans tout justice, love, equity, and peace above all things. But these are the very things denied in practice. If the world and human life are thought to be of significance, then we must admit that nothing is of significance, for those very things are surely not held in significance. So by our own judgment and by our own practice, the things we say are important, we don't treat as important. So they must not be important, so we must be liars. Isaiah makes his point repeatedly that human pretension to significance and actions to support these pretensions must be reduced to nothing. Go back to 2 and read 12 to 17 again. To view this as an algebra equation, this is fun, if X were the quantity of human significance, where in fact significance were only found in Y, then our equation in which we are insist on using X will always be incorrect. On the other hand, if our insistence to grant significance to ourselves will always result only in insignificance, and instead we give significance and glory only to God, then and only then will we achieve true significance. Isn't that a wonderful paradox? If we give ourselves insignificance and give the significance to God, only then can we be given significance. Now, you wrap your head around that and you say, that doesn't make any sense because I just gave myself no significance. Yeah, I know, and that's a significant thing to do. <laughs> when God the Creator is exalted, then the universe itself has significance. This, in turn, gives human beings importance and significance because we were made in His image. We reflect His glory. We are made to share His holy character. Now, does that mean that our atrocities are an indication of our worthlessness? No, 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 it doesn't. Instead, it's an indication of the imperfect nature of our state due to the sin that's within us. And all of our sin is because we refuse to allow God to be our Lord. 
From this flows the paradox of our accomplishments and our failures. You can write this down or you can underline this. When human beings believe that their accomplishments can achieve anything, their works are destructive at their very foundation. When human beings believe that their accomplishments can achieve anything, their works are destructive at their very foundation. We've got a lot of verses on that. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Chapter 5, verses 20 to 25. And chapter 30, 1 to 5. Now, on the other hand, to admit that we are essentially helpless before God's omnipotence is to discover Him enabling us for great things. To admit that we are essentially helpless before God's omnipotence is to discover Him enabling us for great things. Great quote. We see the kings of Israel over and over, and other kings around him too, by the way, as, as men who pretended to have absolute authority. Uh, Ahaz, Hezekiah knew that the more they feigned absolute power, the more, the more clearly they saw their control was worthless. Titles mean nothing. Uh, land and by extension empires mean nothing. To be the king of any domain on earth is to have less sovereign power than to be the servant of the Most High God. Humanity's root weakness was and still is his sin. Let's talk about sin. You can't end on that without going right to sin. I mean, you know, the whole tenor of the book of Isaiah is sin. That, that's, the, that's the entire focus of the book. The book begins speaking of sin in chapter 1, verse 2, and it ends speaking of sin in chapter 66, verse 24. So they're like book in verses talks about the sinful nature of man. But more than that, Isaiah just loathes sin. He hates it. God is the only God. He is the holy creator who made things for his divine and sovereign purpose. History is being directed by God, and to its end of health and peace was God's grand desire. Incredible though it may seem, the very work of God's hands is standing up in rebellion against Him and denying His purpose, refusing His Lordship by saying, no. And that's exactly what mankind has done. For Isaiah, rebellion on the part of man is nothing more than pride. Man refuses to bow down in submission to God, but instead makes himself to be high and mighty. He honors others who make themselves to be, they make themselves to be high and mighty. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be quiet right now. All right, I can think of a situation where we made someone who thought he was high and mighty. We just made him high and mighty. But anyway, and in so doing, we make ourselves to be the sole source of our identity. Isn't that interesting? If we make ourselves be high and mighty, we are the source of our own identity. From this root springs a vicious plant. As we alienate ourselves from God, we grow less and less dependent on others, so that soon we simply use others for our own purposes. And because of the view of using others for one's own ends, the person who does that quickly becomes unfaithful and then moves on from being unfaithful to oppressive and moves on from being oppressive to being controlling. After sin has caused a person to be oppressive and then controlling, the person realizes there are things they cannot control. So their end is to destroy those people. Destruction. If something cannot be controlled, it has to be destroyed, or so goes the logic. Uh, look at chapter 10, verses 7 to 14 for that. Now this is actually rational, and it's logical. But most importantly, we must never forget that this is amoral. The logical destination of sin is destruction. The necessary destination of unrepentant sin is, is unending destruction. I'll say that again. The if you wanted to read that, you know that quote, that whole thing about the, um, down all the way to destruction? Where, where would you read that? I would start at... Um, What's in the book you're talking about? Mm, no, this is a little bit of the book and a little bit of Gary talking. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, I put a footnote but somewhere. You've got, a note, you've got notes there? I, cool. I've got electronic. Yeah, okay. Cool. I like the way that it starts off by saying, look, at first you sin, yeah. 
-hmm. and, and then when you sin, you do it because of your pride. And since you sin out of pride, um, you're, you're alienated from God. And once you alienate from God, you, you put yourself up to be high and mighty. And when you do that, you alienate others. And then pretty soon you start using others. And when you start using others, then pretty soon you start hurting others. And then when you realize you, you can't hurt them enough, then you try to control them. When you can't control them, then you destroy them. Think about the Second World War, yeah. and, and you know, and this is this is all wars. This is this is why, and all it is is evil. Everything is, and it, it's that's the the chief end right here. The logical destination of sin is destruction. This is why the necessary destination of unrepentant sinners is unending destruction. It has to be. So the great lesson we learn from Isaiah is that sin should be seen for its utter stupidity. At the base of all thinking, Isaiah finds that any examination of the facts will reveal that humanity is not the ultimate. Which human can escape death? Which nation can perpetually outsmart their neighbors so as to continually be the greater nation? Which leader, enshrined in his own pomp and power, can be depended on to never fail his people? The hallmark of human activity and achievement is human failure. Yet, we persist in our folly because we find the alternative too distasteful. To admit our sinfulness before a holy God is to admit something about ourselves. We find ourselves instead destroying the facts that we seek to avoid. We become liars, and in so doing, we further add to our stupidity. We sin. I didn't sin. Well, that's a lie. So that, that's more stupid. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's an amazing spiral. Well, it's way early. It's only 7, and I'm, I was trying to get this to go to 7, but that's okay, because I've got a couple things to say, and then I want to talk about, just have you guys visit with about this. Judgment and redemption is the last. God has two responses to sin. Depending on whether we humble ourselves before Him or whether we blunder forward in pride, God will offer us redemption, or He will give us judgment that we so richly deserve. To turn us from our sinful ways, God goes to great lengths to clear the record and restore us to fellowship. Several passages in Isaiah demonstrate God's loving kindness towards Israel when He does just that. Uh, 30, 18, 53, 12, and 63, 1 to 6. You'll notice most of those are in the last part of the book there when He talks about God making overtures to try and get them uh, to turn away from their sins. In the larger structure of the book, in chapters 1 to 39, we see God's judgment emphasized, whereas in the final portion we note His powers and persistence in redemption. While we see judgment emphasized in specific portions throughout the book, chapters 1 through 6, uh, 7 through 12, and 30 and 31, it may also be true that judgment may become a stimulus for redemption, especially when God uses the Assyrians and later on the Babylonians uh, to exact their powers against, against Israel. So God can make us suffer in order to call us back to Him, and sometimes that happens. He uses His heavy hand as a stimulus to cause Israel to run back to Him. How many of us know the times that we've had to do some things in our life or things have happened to us and actually that was the stimulus to cause us to go back to God. He still does it today. Well, judgment takes many forms in Isaiah. Uh, they could be natural disasters as in 24, 4 to 5. Uh, military defeats as in chapter 5, verses 26 to 30. Even disease, we see that in chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. Sin to Isaiah is not merely the outworkings of a sinner, but also the outworkings of an offended deity. It's important that we never forget Isaiah 6. God was not a force. God still is not a force. He was overwhelmingly person. Not a person, but His nature is person. He's not a thing. God is person. This means that He's going to respond to all things in an overwhelming manner since He's overwhelmingly a person. He is offended with passion, even by rage, by sin. He loves deeply and with passion, and He has hatred toward all things which corrupt His people. Uh, go to 9 verse 11 to see how much He hates the sin. God does not neatly separate the sin from the sinner. 
All sinners will feel the result of his anger upon themselves, but the important difference is this. All who repent will at once receive forgiveness. Not only will they receive forgiveness, but God's anger will subside at once. 10.25, 12.1, 26.20, and verse 26, and 30.18. God does not hold on to His anger, but He longs to extend His compassion to His people if they will just turn to Him. And God knows when you've turned to Him, and God also knows when you've not turned to Him. These principles are true in the time of Isaiah. They're equally true today. Sinners find God to be holy. They're prideful, and they wish to carry on without God, basically. Sinners will find their path is a destructive one. They deserve punishment, and they deserve eternal separation from God. Sinners deserve perpetual suffering by fire. But if these same sinners confess their sins and repent of their sins... They will receive God's compassionate love, His undeserved grace resulting in sanctification while they live on this earth, and glorification while they enjoy eternal peace and happiness with Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. I wish we had more time to go through Isaiah. Um, a study, study guide, if you wish to get into Isaiah, Here's what I came up with this week, and I always want to give you something as I leave how to study the book. Go back to your outline there at the very beginning on page, oh, I was going to say on page two. It's on, it's on the front page. And there's those seven parts there that takes you up to the end of chapter 39. You can add three more parts to this, but, but here's the way I, I like to really study Scripture. I read the same portion of Scripture for a month. I know you're saying, what do you mean for a month? I mean like if I'm reading chapters 1, 1 to 6.13, that looks like a big chunk to read. Read that every day for a month. By the time you're done, actually by the time you're in two weeks, you're getting tired of reading it because you think you know it pretty good. But then you start to see things again after two weeks. And by the time you're at 30 days, you know, it's pretty cool. You don't want to stop, but, but you've got to move on. While you're reading 1, 1 to 6.13, find a nice, quick commentary. Now, the, the MacArthur... Study Bible is great. <coughs> and there's also another commentary out there that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pedal on you here a little bit. It's, it's called the uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee wrote it, and he's got the, he's got the whole Bible, but it's, it's very quick, it's very concise, it's very accessible. It's written like a, uh, like a good old boy talking to you, because basically it is. But he's doctrinally, he's very sound. And he's got two volumes for Isaiah. One of them only goes to chapter 35, and the other one goes to chapter 66. They're nine bucks a piece, they're paperback. But you can read, while you're reading that book, chapter 1, 1 to 6, 13, you can read the McGee commentary just for those six chapters just during that month. And, and then by the end of the month, you've not only got the Bible, and hopefully you read all the study notes in MacArthur while you're doing this too, but now you read the McGee in it too. Give yourself 45 minutes a day, and, and you'll probably get it all figured out by the end of a month. And then this will take you through seven months, and it'll take you through chapter 39. The last three months, you divide into nine chapters apiece. So you go 40 to 49, 50 to 58, and then 59 to 66. And do those over the next three months. And then you'll, by then you'll be in your second volume of McGee. Uh, 45 minutes a day for 10 months. That's quite, that, that's, that's quite the commitment. So over a year's time, you might want to put this down as a New Year's resolution. Say, this year I will do this. I will, I will study Isaiah thoroughly. It's a great way to study God's Word. It's got great Christology. You'll learn to really fall in love with all that was going on. If you want to learn more about the history of Israel, uh, there's a book, uh, William C. Kaiser wrote a book called The History of Israel, a catchy little title. And it's, it's uh, one that we're studying when we prepare for this. Um, very easily readable. It, it, it fills in basically Kings and Chronicles. And in the history, well, it takes you all the way from the Stone Age to about 50 B.C., and all the way about 3000 BC. So it's a big sprawling, but the whole book is only, I don't know, maybe 250, 300 pages. And you can, you can get through a king in Israel, two or three kings a chapter. And I just, quit watching TV, you know? <laughs> just, just do this. This is a whole lot more fun. And uh, you, you'll find that to be a good time. Okay. So I'm done pitching my books. I'm done telling you how much you ought to be reading the Bible. And I made, did I say something about no TV? So I did that for the night. Did anyone get through 39 chapters of Isaiah? Yeah, I know. 
Yeah. You doll 66? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we read them. You know, and my eyeballs move from left to right, too. I mean, I'm, I can do that any day. But to really understand them and to really understand some of the little nuances, it, it takes weeks, if not months. So that's, that's the downside of this study. But um, I hope this kind of gave you guys some ideas. Um, I didn't touch on a lot of Scripture. I just I wanted to really get into the theology because I really wanted to get you excited about what God says about Himself and about us and, what, you know, and the Christology. 